Thank you, Miss Lori. Well, please turn with me to Matthew 19. As we've spent three weeks, or this is the third week rather, uh, talking about marriage, the implications of marriage. And two weeks ago, Christ's high view of marriage contrasted with the low view of marriage by the Pharisees. And I'd ask you to stand with me as we go through a rather short text today, verses 10 through 12, but I'm going to be reading from verse 3 through 12. Again, we're reading verses 3 through 12 of God's Holy Word today, but the focus of our teaching is going to attempt to examine verses 10 through 12. This is God's Holy Word to us. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, created them, who created them from the beginning, rather, made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Again I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Our text today. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Please pray with me. Father, we come to a text, uh, Lord, that is heavy on my heart, Lord. Heavy on my heart, not because it's particularly difficult to understand what Christ is saying. It's heavy on my heart, Lord. Because I want you to be honored and the gospel to be glorified through this text. And it's been an a honest struggle for me to, to be able to try to write a sermon that would do that. And I pray, God, that you would help me to rest in your holy power and sovereign will. That you would make your word effectual to your people. I pray, Lord, that you would help me not to be puffed up with pride. Uh, that I would hinder your word in any way, but merely to, to rely on you. Please, God, help us today to be attentive to your word so that we might know how we ought to think about your law, how we ought to think about marriage, how we ought to counsel those in the church that are not married, cannot be married, and that will someday be married. God, we love you. I pray that you would help us and bless us today through your holy word. You are able to do far above all that we ask or think, and we ask that you take these these few pieces of bread, God, as we often pray, and that you would break them and multiply them for the good of all your people. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. In thinking about this text this morning, what comes to my mind primarily is that fallen man has a, a unique ability that we are able to take God's law, His His righteous conduct 
that He has put on our consciences and even through the Word of God. And we're able to, to erase it from our minds, to obscure it and to twist it. We see this primarily with the people of Israel. That they have the law of Moses given to them on Mount Sinai, not as a new law, it's new conduct and new content that people had never considered before, but from the time of Adam to the time of Mount Sinai, the people of the world had so lived in their own ways and so twisted the conscience that God had given them that God had to republish that law and put it in writing, even in tablets of stone, so that men would know that this is what my law is and this is what it says. And the shocking thing to me here today is we have the disciples here, apostles who had given their life for Jesus Christ, who had walked away from legitimate businesses and callings to follow our Savior. And here we see that they had imbibed much of the wrong doctrine of marriage that the world had done. We are, even as saved individuals, able to twist God's Word in certain ways, but praise be to God that He's given us His Word that corrects us in these things. And that's what we see in our text today. Jesus correcting His disciples. As we saw the last previous weeks, He corrects the Pharisees and He calls them to trust in Him by His grace, shows them the error of their ways that they would avoid their sin. But He also does that to His people. We see that Jesus corrects and clarifies the disciples' conclusion. He corrects their conclusion that marriage is inferior to singleness in all cases. Okay? That's what the disciples seem to conclude in this text. The singleness is better for all people and marriage is inferior. And so today as we go through this text looking at the disciples' response to Jesus' high view of marriage and Christ's correction of that, I think that we have a twofold purpose. First, that we should be convinced that marriage is to be entered into soberly as a covenant with God and your spouse involved. It is something that must be soberly, seriously considered. And then secondly, that we should be convinced that marriage is such a high and foundational doctrine of what it means to be man, that marriage should sanctify our singleness, right? That marriage has a relationship to singleness that ought to make even our singleness holy, whether that's temporary or permanent. And so today, I want us to first consider in verses 10 through 11, that marriage must be soberly considered. Marriage must be soberly considered. And in verses 10 through 11, we have the disciples' proposed conclusion in verse 10. And then in verse 11, we have the, the saying that Christ says, not everyone can receive this saying. So, as we consider marriage and see that it must be soberly thought about in our minds, we see first and foremost in verse 10 that Christ's high view of marriage, it reveals what the disciples thought in their own hearts. It reveals the doctrine of the disciples in their hearts. And so, just to remind us of the context here, we have been overwhelmed in verses 3 through 9 with a deep contrast. The contrast first of the low view of the Pharisees, which we saw. We saw that they believed that a man had the freedom to put away his wife for any cause. 
That they really and truly believed that marriage was merely a contract that was, again, contingent upon my own personal happiness. And if a woman made me unhappy in any way, I had the right, the freedom, and even the command of God to put her away because my happiness is supreme. But we see Christ contrast with that, didn't we? That Jesus, in quoting Genesis 127 and 224, told us very clearly that from the beginning of the creation of the world, that marriage is a foundational element of what it means to be man. That God created man, male and female, and then said that a man should leave his father and mother under normal circumstances and be joined to his wife, and they should be one flesh. And from that, we consider that God always intended normally for man and wife to be joined together in holy matrimony. Secondly, we considered Christ's high view was not just God's intent in creating man, but that the language reflects covenant obligations that we leave and we cleave to one another. And thirdly, and the pinnacle of Christ's argument in this text is that God really and truly takes two people and puts them together in one flesh in a mystical way that I honestly don't totally comprehend. And we saw Christ's high view is obviously seen most clearly by Paul and showing that it was to reflect Jesus Christ and His relationship to His church, binding us together in one with Him. Okay? So we've seen this high view. We've seen Christ, what He says about marriage... And now the scene shifts away from Christ talking to his enemies and showing them their error to a private scene with his disciples. We've seen this pattern since chapter 13. As Christ has been preaching the gospel and the people have become more hardened in their hearts, the parables, you might remember, were given for a particular purpose that the people would hear and not understand. But the disciples, they would go and ask our Savior... What does this mean? And he would give them clarity. And that's what we see here. The disciples come and they ask Jesus what is going on here. Christ will answer the questions of his people so they might know his teaching better. But what do we, what's the sense that we get from verse 10 about the disciples' heart reaction to what Christ has just preached? Isn't it that they were shocked to some degree? You can see that in the very language that is used. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. It seems clear to me in reading this text that the disciples had imbibed the normal cultural view at the time that was just like the Pharisees. Marriage is given for my happiness and nothing else. And here, hearing what Jesus said, they're totally shocked. They're totally shocked. And we might consider as conservative Christians sitting here today why they would be shocked. Marriage is something that we have conferences about. We have, if you go to the Christian bookstore and go to a section on marriage, I mean, hundreds of books are written probably every year about marriage. We spend a lot of time defending it. And we might be confused why the disciples are so confused in this instance. Well, I think that we don't take seriously enough the influence that culture can have, and especially religious culture, on our thinking. What comes to my mind is Augustine. I don't know if any of you have read the Confessions of St. Augustine. Okay? In the Confessions, he talks about one of his friends. that At the time of his writings, the Roman games were taking place, right? 
where people, prisoners, slaves would be brought before, sometimes killed by beasts, sometimes killed by centurions or other men. It was blood sport, right? And people loved it. They loved to watch people be torn limb from limb and die in the Colosseum. And that's a repulsive thing for us. But sometimes the sins of our age so blind us. This friend of Augustine's, he was convinced being converted to Christianity that he could not attend the games anymore that he once loved. But one day his friends took him, and I think how Augustine puts it is by friendly violence, right? Took him to the Colosseum. And he said he would not open his eyes to what was being done there. But he heard with his ears when the first man was killed, the bloodlust of the crowd roaring and seething with delight at what they just saw. He finally opened his eyes. And Augustine says, this man was dragged back into going to the Colosseum to watch these blood sports. And it was years until God pulled him back out of that. The point being, there can be sins of a particular age that are absolutely repulsive to us, but they can overtake us because we have an effect, the culture has an effect on our thinking that sometimes we don't understand and realize. And I think that's what's going on with our disciples in this case. They were held by this Pharisaic view. Marriage was something that was primarily based on the man's happiness. But Christ has given his refutation here. He has shown marriage to be high and holy and intended by God from all of creation. He has shown it to be the bonding together of two people in sacred union. And all of that entails with the duties of how we're to treat one another if we're truly one flesh. And this leaves the disciples bewildered at this point. They're bewildered. And this shock that they're experiencing leads them to come up with a theological solution to what Jesus has said. Theological solution. They lived in a culture that idolized freedom and happiness. And so as they hear Christ exalt marriage, and they see the duties, they came up with a solution. And it's kind of shocking to read. Well, marriage isn't good. Right? Well, and you might read more carefully in the text, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. It's better not to marry. Singleness is much to be preferred over marriage. And we should realize that they're not saying that singleness is better so that we can serve the kingdom of God to a greater degree here. They see the happiness in their minds being constrained, freedom being constrained by the teaching of Christ, and they so value that that unthinkingly they say, well, it's better to remain single in this life. Marriage is not good. All the duties of faithfulness and love as one flesh, they conclude that it's better not to imprison yourself with these duties. It's better not to do that. But I want us to see in verse 10, if we consider it carefully, there are some positive elements to what the disciples conclude here and some negative ones that Christ addresses. Okay? So as we consider them saying, it is better for a man not to marry if such is the case of a man with his wife, there are some commendable things that the disciples have in this case. First, we have to see that the disciples really do submit to Christ's teaching here. They submit to Christ's teaching. And we might take that for granted here. But how often do we present true and obedient doctrine to people and they refuse to submit to Christ's teaching? But here, they recognize what Jesus Christ is saying is true. They realize what Christ is saying. And they deduce 
in verse 10, but we should see that they are willing to submit and accept the view of their master. They don't have any hard rejection. No, Jesus, you have it wrong. It is right for us to divorce our wives for any cause. They submit to Jesus Christ here. But secondly, they recognize here from Christ's teaching that marriage is an extremely serious and sober thing to consider. It's a serious thing to consider. They say it's better for a man to remain single and not burden himself with marriage. Now, our culture does the same thing. I know I've used the word culture many times here. But our culture does the same thing. We see young people very rarely entering into marriage, especially if compared with the older days, right? And we might think that we'd conclude, well, our, our current culture takes marriage seriously, but in fact, that's not the case. They take their own personal freedom the most seriously, right? They're wanting to travel, to save up money, to buy the new car, to have the new house, to have that perfect job that they always wanted. They don't enter into marriage. But the disciples' view is different from that. They realize that God's fatherly displeasure falls on those who, who get divorced if Christ's teaching is true and they believe that it is. They believe that it is. And they do not want to displease their father here. They believe, and rightly so, I'm sure, that if they enter into marriage unthinkingly, without a sober attitude, and they end up divorcing their wife, that God's chastisement would fall upon them as believers. And they certainly don't want that. They see that marriage is sober, something serious, and this is a right attitude that Scripture commends. Turn with me to two passages. This is especially with regard to oaths and vows in the church, which marriage is one. Marriage is a, a vow that we make to one another and to God, isn't it? And in Deuteronomy 23, we see the carefulness that God prescribes for entering into a vow or an oath with God. Notice Deuteronomy 23. In verse 21 through 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Refrain and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful what, you, what you, has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And so the disciples see this. And the second passage I'd have us to turn to to see this is again having to do with oaths and vows and is in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 likewise warns us that when we are entering into an oath or a vow with God, we ought to do it with the utmost prudence and care. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and I'm just going to read verses 4 through 5. It says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. And then verse 6, Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And all I want us to see here is that the disciples' minds in some sense is in line with this holy principle of Scripture. Marriage is serious, and anything that is serious, especially in the eyes of God with oaths and vows concerned, ought to be taken very seriously. In their mind, in their shock, marriage has been presented as holier and better than anything they could have ever imagined. 
And therefore, part of their conclusion that's commendable is we should not take that lightly. The disciples are to be commended in part for what they say here. But as with all of us, coming to correct doctrine and correct theology is a process. As wrong as their conclusion is, there's a godly reflex that we should sense in this passage. They trust Christ and not their own thinking on the subject. They do not trust their own mind and what the culture has told them, that marriage is merely for their own personal happiness. Rather, they trust what Jesus Christ has said is true, even though they are struggling greatly with the consequences of that. Marriage must be taken seriously. Duties must be understood. How practical is this for us to consider, brothers and sisters? If marriage is as high as Jesus Christ says, we should take a cue from the disciples, not enter into it lightly. We should engage, if we can, into premarital counseling before we get married. We should have counsel sought from other brothers and sisters in Christ whether this is an appropriate relationship for me to be engaged with at this time. We should spend time in prayer about marriage. The disciples grasped this seriousness about marriage. But, obviously, we must not only commend them, we must be aware of their faulty conclusions that they make. Okay, And the wrong conclusion is it's better for all people not to marry. It's just a better state for people to remain in their singleness. Now, I want us to consider what the disciples are saying here carefully, that we'd be aware of it, that implicitly, under the the subtext of what's actually said in the Word, that God's institution of marriage that He commanded from the beginning is not good. It does not tend towards human flourishing and happiness. Rather, God's commands are too hard to be endured. Do you see that here? God has commanded us to leave our father and mother and to be joined with our wife. He has intended a sacred covenant of marriage and Christ has set it up as holy. But the disciples here, unthinkingly, I believe, are saying, well, that institution, it's really very much too hard for us to engage in. It would be better for us to kind of go around all the duties involved with that. Now, have you ever thought that way? About perhaps something hard that you saw in the Word of God that you were to obey God in, but it seemed too hard in the moment. I know that I have, and I know that I've sinned grievously in doing that. We can trick our own minds into thinking that God gave His law, but it's not good for me at this particular time and location. But we're impugning God's character when we do that. We're imbibing with the disciples the subtle lie from the Garden of Eden. That God has given us these commands, but He's being arbitrary and malicious in doing it. He doesn't want your good. You should eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the same thing is true here. These disciples are seeing the commandments of God, and they see the duties, and they say, it's too hard for us to do. Let's go around it. We should go around it, they think. We should realize that God's commands are always Always, never an exception for our good. God does not command anything of His people that would tend towards their destruction. Rather, He works all things for the good of those who love Him. 
His commands are never meant to harm us, but always meant to lead us in the direction of peace in Jesus Christ. Now, I just ask you today, if there was any man in the earth that could fathom that God's commands might be for his destruction rather than his good, who would that be? It would be Jesus Christ himself. As he came to this earth and left glory, he realized the covenant duties and terrors it meant to join a bride to himself. He knew that to save us, he was going to have to live a life of constant humiliation, sorrow, poverty, and perfect obedience. In the midst of a people who hated him, who rejected him, ending his life on a cross where he, the author of life, would die on a tree. Now, if we could ever imagine such a thing, this man, if it was at all true, which it isn't, if we could imagine any way that God's commands, a person could say that they aren't for my good, Jesus Christ might be able to say that. But we see that Jesus does the exact opposite, doesn't he? He realizes even though God commanded him to do the most difficult thing in the world to save his people through perfect obedience and sacrifice, that Jesus Christ saw that his God was supremely good in giving him his commands. And when he laid down his life, he trusted his Father that he would lead him through the valley of the shadow of death and resurrect him into glory. God's law is for our good. The disciples' bad theology here is that God's law keeps us from good. And that's certainly not the case. Secondly, in the implicit action here of them saying that God's institution is not good, is that they lack faith that God will help them through the hardness of their struggle. That God would not help them. And we should make no two ways about it. Marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. We are two sinners joined together in holy matrimony, and we're going to rub each other the wrong way all the time. Okay? Marriage is difficult, but we are not to conclude that we should not do it from that fact. God is here to help us through our struggles and through our times. And I would just tell you, brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ laid down His life to save you from your sin, will He not certainly with Him give you all things? He'll give you what you need to endure hardship in marriage. Now, if we were to take this logic to its logical conclusion, anything that we are called to that was difficult and hard, we could just do away with. We wouldn't have any doctors or lawyers or pastors or mothers or fathers or anything. Conclude that God has commanded us too hard of a thing, but we should trust that God will provide faith and strength to do what is required of us. So, implicitly, under the subtext, maybe not even in the disciples' mind, they're denying that God's commandment He gave to His people for their good was actually not for their good, and that they knew better. Singleness is to be preferred. But explicitly, the thing that they get wrong here is that singleness is universally better for all people. Okay? And we see here, very clearly, that Jesus disagrees with that, don't we? Jesus disagrees with that um, in the clearest language possible. 
It's better not to marry. And Jesus gives some examples of some people that should not seek marriage. And the implication of that is that all other people should seek marriage. And you should notice the percentage of the people included in verses 11 through 12 is very, very small. Included are those people who cannot fulfill the marriage covenant by providence and those who are graced to not fulfill the marriage covenant by seeking the kingdom of heaven with their time and energy. It's a very, very, very small group of people. Jesus disagrees with the disciples' conclusion here that singleness is universally better for all. Now, I realize that first and foremost in our mind, we might be thinking of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. I think that Paul, maybe at first glance, agrees with the disciples here that marriage is universally not as good as singleness. But turn there with me. I just want to briefly give some arguments to that kind of thinking. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want us to see that Paul does not constrain the people that he's writing to so tightly as to conclude that marriage, that singleness is always better in every circumstance. First, throughout this chapter, Paul assumes that a gift and grace of God for perpetual abstinence is necessary. Okay? Notice with me that Paul says this in verses 2, 7, 9, and 36. Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul assumes that man was created with a natural and good desire for sexual relations, and because of that temptation, it is good to marry. Notice verse 7. He goes along the same line. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Again, Paul agrees that not everybody is gifted for this life. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better. Notice, it's better to marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. And then verses 36 through 37, lastly, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, and the Greek here is literally his virgin, okay? If his passions are strong, and it has to, to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But notice the gift of God here, the grace of God to give somebody with a perpetual abstinence. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So first, Paul is not in agreement with the disciples in this text because Paul realizes that there must be a special grace of God of perpetual abstinence and a special self-control that is not normally given to men or women. And second, it seems in verse 26 of our passage that there are circumstantial hardships that causes Paul to use such strong language about singleness. Okay. Notice verse 26. I think in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Okay. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 is a hard passage, and we've talked about that many times during our Q&A. Okay. 
But I think that these two things show us that Paul is really saying nothing different at all than what Jesus Christ says, but under a different context and with different perspective in mind. He's helping these people with a different problem. And he is saying, it is good, Paul is saying, and Christ, it is good that some people not marry. It is good that some people not marry. The disciples are wrong to assert that all people would be better off not marrying. This is not a denigration of marriage by Paul, nor is it an unnecessary exaltation of singleness by Paul. Rather, it is objectively good, again, for some people to remain in a state of singleness if they have this gifting of continency, as the Puritans would say, and under providence of God. Okay, So the sum of this first point, that we must take marriage soberly, think of it soberly, is that marriage is a high and exalted ordinance of God, and it's to be highly revered in the eyes of Christians. It's to be more highly revered than I really realized before this week. It is to be so highly revered that we should enter into it carefully. And like the disciples here, they're willing to submit to what Christ says, even if they have some struggles with it. That is a good a good reflex of our heart. And the warning that I have for us today is that we cannot, we cannot let our culture drive what our view of marriage is. I mean, you know and I know, I can't turn on the TV without seeing some perversion of marriage in some way or the other. Can't walk down the supermarket aisle in the store, and we would be foolish to think that we are unable to be pulled away from a biblical view. We must. We must let Christ guide our thinking here. We ought not to be faithless like the disciples. Rather, we are to see the gravity of marriage, and instead of saying, I'm not going to do that because it's too hard, we'd be purposed in our heart to lean on God to give us grace and all these things because God's commandments are good to us. They're good to us. We are to see the gravity of marriage, lean on God for strength, to do as we are commanded, as Christ did for us. As Christ did for us. This is made even more clear by the very few exceptions that Christ allows for marriage. Okay, So, the first thing that we should have clearly in our minds is that marriage has to be considered soberly by us. Okay, But, secondly, that reinforces this, is that a high view of marriage is required for faithful singleness. Let me say that again. A high view of marriage is required for faithful singleness. Christ, in exalting this high view of marriage and correcting the disciples here, tells them, That there are certainly some people who are going to remain single. Some, not by their own choice, but those who make the choice to stay in a single state, an abstinent single state, do so only for the kingdom of God. Marriage is seen so highly that only kingdom work can somewhat overrule that. All right? So first, I want us to see that there are some that are called to singleness. And that language is not necessarily in our text, but it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to remain in the state that you are called. Okay, And some would take this text in verses 10 through 12 and say that the calling that we are to experience when Christ has received this saying, that's what he's saying, 
that we are, certain people are called, and some would take that in our culture to mean that there is a subjective spiritual experience that somebody is called to singleness. Okay? But first, we have to examine what is Christ referring to? When he says, not everyone can receive this saying. All right? So the, there's some liberal scholars that I never even thought this way. Some liberal scholars that would say that to receive this saying is what Christ said previously. That his high view of marriage and that you should not put asunder what God has put together. He, they say, not all can receive that saying. And so, do whatever you like. That is obviously not what Christ means in this text. Rather, Christ is pointing to what follows here. Right? He's not pointing to what was before but what follows, not everyone can receive this saying, and this is what the saying is, only to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And what we should see here is that marriage is the normative principle of life, but there are some exceptions to it. Okay. So while we consider the notion of calling here, whoever can receive this saying, receive it. The modern notion of calling that I want to address just really briefly is that calling is purely subjective. It's purely subjective. I mean, how many times have we read stories or seen this happen where a new convert that's excited about God, he comes before the pastors of the congregation and says, I've just been converted, and I want to go to Africa as a missionary. And rather than that person being in the church, seeing their gifts used, and have that calling more fermented with objective truth, it is purely subjective element that overtakes our thinking, and we send that young man away to Africa, or to seminary, or to something else. In our culture, in our Christian culture, The notion of calling is almost entirely rooted in our subjective emotions. And in fact, subjective emotions often, they trump the objective truths of Scripture. For example, I I met a a wonderful lady in Alaska who was the pastor of a church. And she learned that I was a Baptist and said that you don't believe that I'm supposed to be a pastor, right? Right? But her reasoning was, well, I felt such a strong desire and calling to take care of God's people, right? That, that no other biblical text or no other argument could take her away from that. And that's often the case. When we talk about that young man who comes before the elders, wants to go to Africa, it's that subjective experience in the heart that trumps everything that I must go rather than looking to the biblical pattern. And what does the biblical pattern show us? It is not pure subjectivity, that calling is based on, but really objectivity. Now, there is a subjective element, but it is almost entirely talked about in objective means. Uh, For example, if we think about how men are chosen for ministry in the book of Acts, in Acts 1 and Acts 6, it is by the objective things. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are to choose an apostle to replace Judas, and they are given objective things to look for. This has to be a man that walked with us while Jesus Christ was on the earth. And they choose two, and they cast lots to choose one. In Acts chapter 6, when the deacons are chosen, 
You remember what Peter says. He says, choose from among yourselves seven men filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom to put over this matter. Right? That is, there's some objective reality to the calling of these men. Look for men whom you've seen exercise in your midst wisdom. And the Spirit's leading. Choose those men. Choose those men. And again, lastly, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see this idea of calling is almost, almost I say, totally objective and not subjective. Now, true... In verse 1, we see the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires or desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There is a desire normally worked into the person's heart, but we see in one verse the subjective, but six verses following that are purely objective qualities to how this person is to be chosen. You're to look how he behaves among the congregation with his family. His gifts and his calling. These are not subjective things. And likewise with deacons, it doesn't give any subjective things. It just says if they are these things. Now, brothers and sisters, all I want to prove by this is that providence and a man's giftedness are the primary things that we look to to see if a person is called. And that connects to what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 19. Because Jesus Christ says the same thing. Who are those who can remain single and go around the doctrine of marriage? It's only those who have been gifted specially by God and have been called by God's providence, especially for that state. Okay? Now, notice that with me. First, some are single because of circumstantial providence. This is the first part of verse 12. Some are single because of circumstantial providence. Now, I, I know I won't pick on anybody in particular. And it's a good question. It's not picking on. The question is, why does Christ choose to use the word eunuch here, right? You know, a, a eunuch is a, a, is a human man who has been castrated, okay? So why does Christ choose to answer the question about not being married with the illustration of a eunuch? Well, really, it's because Jesus Christ sees the connection between marriage and sexual relation is so strong, right, that those that are called to be single are referred to as eunuchs because they can't fulfill that primary, one of those primary obligations of the marriage relationship. They're not able to fulfill that chief end. And so Christ calls them eunuchs, but I don't think we're to take that totally literally here. Not totally Literally. That is, some live a life of singleness because they're unable to fulfill the chief end of marriage, whatever that would be. Okay? Some are born into that state. Where for whatever reason, uh, physically, I'm even willing to say maybe psychologically or something, they are unable to fulfill that part of the marriage obligation. Then they are single. Some are eunuchs by birth. But... Some are single because of circumstances that have taken place after birth. Notice, some are made eunuchs by men. And we can think of maybe several instances in Scripture where we see that. We just read in 2 Kings at the murder of Jezebel or the killing, the execution of Jezebel, that they went up and there were three eunuchs that looked out the window at Jehu as he arrived. These are men who were taken by kings in the ancient world and they were castrated 
sometimes put over the harem of the king so that they would not be engaged just to state it. It was sexual intercourse with anybody in the palace. Okay? Some are made eunuchs by men. And some, to take this a little more broadly, cannot fulfill the obligation of marriage because something has happened to them in their life. Perhaps there's been paralysis or something else that has taken place that has made that impossible for them to fulfill. But Jesus is guiding our attention to providence here. Some are called to a life of singleness by nothing that they could help. It's by circumstances outside of themselves affecting them or even by birth. Now, if anybody's in those situations, those are extremely difficult circumstances that are sometimes attended with a great desire to marry, but it's not possible. And if anybody's in that situation, um, I just ask you to to lean on Christ and give you strength to endure that. Um, There are many sad results of living in a fallen world. But some, and this is Christ's point mainly, may be single by God's grace. And you'll notice that some have been made eunuchs by men, and there are some who have made themselves eunuchs. Um, Now, this is not to be taken totally literally, which I I don't know if anybody's familiar with Origen, an early church father. He took this text very literally in his young Christian life, and he literally castrated himself, but later regretted that decision. And that is not what Christ is telling us to do here. Rather, again, he's taking it broadly that there are some, like Paul said, who are able, by God's grace, to live an abstinent Christian life. Okay? Some are single by God's grace. That is by, by a gifting. A gifting. Um, the gift of, of self-control. And this could be for a limited time. Nowhere in Scripture do we read of the, the popish way of looking at things. You have to make a vow of celibacy for your entire life. It could be for a very limited amount of time that a young man or a young woman says that I'm going to abstain from looking for a partner that I might serve the kingdom of God. They've been gifted by God a a measure of self-control and can seek after that. But also a desire to do kingdom work. And the main thing I want us to see here is that marriage is so normative that singleness is only chosen to seek the kingdom of God for spiritual reasons. And this is very clear in Jesus' own words. They made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. That is, no man, I don't believe, has the right to make themselves a eunuch, to choose a life of singleness because of travel or money or leisure. Rather, marriage is to be held so highly, so normatively by God's intention and plan that it's to be sought after unless one has this gifting and the desire to do so. And... 1 Corinthians 7, I think, amplifies this. 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 32-35. Notice what Paul says. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 
I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Notice that the Apostle Paul is saying the exact same thing here. There are some that can remain single, but notice the Apostle Paul assumes that if a Christian is to remain single by choice, not any providence working in his situation, then he is to do it to seek the things of the Lord and to have undivided devotion to the Lord in that situation. And so today, in conclusion, if you're single here today, brothers and sisters, trust God's providence. Trust God's providence. It might be that you are called to a life of singleness, but to know that it is not based on your subjective experience, but to to look and examine your gifts. Do you have the the gifting to abstain from marriage and serve the Lord in this, this special way? To the married, I would just ask you to have these realities in your mind that we could counsel those in our church that are in singleness, whether temporarily or permanently, that we might... We might all walk side by side together in this. So, in conclusion, this, this difficult text here today, the main considerations I want us to take away is that marriage is a serious and sober covenant that we have entered into or we will enter into. It's so serious that it should guide the way that we treat our spouses, the way that we counsel each other in the church, and certainly should guard us against the, the false doctrine that the culture tries to drag us away with. But secondly, if you're single here today, it's only a high view of marriage that properly sanctifies your singleness. You're not single for your own self, but single to serve the kingdom of God and His grace. And if God has died for us and given Himself for us, then surely He will give us grace in all things. And so as we look at the communion table today, and we turn our eyes to it, we see that Christ lived a life, chose to live a life of singleness to serve the kingdom of God all the days of His life. He chose not to be burdened, not in a negative way, but not to have His energies and time taken away to serve a wife, but to do everything for His greater bride, the church. He laid down his life for us, and we're reminded of his grace today to do that. Um, Please pray with me. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. And uh, God, I pray that you would bless these, uh, these weak and stumbling words today. I pray that you would help us to see the truths of what we've gone through. And I pray that we'd cling to the good and cast away the bad, Lord, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.